it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. For the next eight weeks, the Rewatchables will be covering eight films that are incredibly rewatchable despite having one major flaw. So far, we've covered the movie Higher Learning, and this Wednesday, Bill Simmons, Chris Ryan, and Ryan Russillo are talking about the 1985 wrestling classic, Vision Quest. So make sure and check out the flawed Rewatchables on the Rewatchables feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Larry Wilmore here. You're listening to Black on the Air. Really interesting show today. I'm talking to Dr. Lakeisha Hallman. I met her when I was in uh, Atlanta, when I was talking to Stacey Abrams. And uh, Dr. Hallman is awesome. She's uh, kind of counsels young black entrepreneurs in Atlanta. And it's a fascinating story of what she's doing there and, you know, kind of a boots on the ground type of thing. But she's awesome. So that talk's coming up. Wanted to showcase some young people who I think are doing some great things out there. Something I want to do a little bit more of. And she's awesome. I love speaking with her. Somebody you should definitely know who's out there making a difference. So anyhow, that's coming up. You know, I'm doing this right before the South Carolina vote, South Carolina primary, and Super Tuesday, which is, I think, next week. I think it's Tuesday, Super Tuesday. So I'll talk about what's going on then. But here, I will say this about that last debate and everything in South Carolina. Here's what I'm getting tired of, of what the Democrats are doing. <laughs> These aren't really debates in my mind. People are just attacking each other. <laughs> That's all they're doing. We're learning nothing about really who you should be voting for in these types of situations. It's very, very disappointing. I mean, as exhilarating as it is to see Elizabeth Warren even, you know, kind of cut Michael Bloomberg off at the knees at a certain point. I wonder if it kind of works against her. You know, you just it looks like she's just a hatchet man for Sanders sometimes rather than presenting herself as an alternative and, you know, just bringing people into that tent because it hasn't translated the way that it should, you know. And I think attack mode, attack mode is okay, but if it's all attack mode, I just don't know how that plays on people's ears is what I'm saying, you know. Not saying that you shouldn't go after people when they've done things, but uh, I guess the way that this last debate was, it was a shit show as far as I'm concerned, man. It was so hard to watch, you know. I do like, look, as much as I criticize CNN, I think those town halls aren't a bad way just to hear somebody out. It might be nice if they did those with two people at a time and, you know, you had a more reasoned debate, like structured as a real debate rather than what's going on, which what's going on now aren't really debates, they call them debates, but they're really not. They're really just opportunities for people to make other people seem unqualified, you know, <laughs> which is crazy because somebody's going to get through, probably Bernie, and everybody's going to have to act like they didn't say it, you know. So, you know, I would rather hear, really hear from people directly about what they're going to do. Anyhow, just my little thing. But we're going to see if Bernie's going to be unstoppable by next week. A week from now, that may be the case. So we'll see. In fact, while you're listening to this, you may already know the answer. I don't know. Other than that, I won't have much to say right now, but I will say, you know what? Thank God about Harvey Weinstein. That motherfucker's going to jail. You know, I hope he rots in jail. You know, on my show, on the nightly show, I went after Cosby, and it's a big issue of mine. It wasn't just Cosby. You know, it was people who had done those kind of horrible things. You know, in the Me Too movement, it has its critics and it's, you know, all this type of stuff. But I think if it was designed for anything, 
it was to bring people like Harvey Weinstein down to his fucking knees, man, and pay a, at least some kind of a price for just the out of control, the out of control, horrible behavior that not only he, but a lot of people in Hollywood have had. And it's not just Hollywood. We know the business world has been like that for since business was invented. But um, happy isn't the right word when I say that because it's just a nasty thing anyway. But yeah, there's some satisfaction that that went down. And I think he still has to come to L.A. and face some charges too. But um, that makes me feel good that he's going away. He's got to throw that walker away. Nobody, he doesn't have to pretend that he's He's all pathetic like Cosby, pretending like he's blind and all that crap, you know. So that's it. That's all I got to talk about. Happy about that. Um, We'll do a big check-in on the election next week and see where everything stands, because that's going to be more interesting than me talking about today. All right. That's about it. Not too much funny stuff, you guys. Sorry. But we got Dr. Holloman coming up. All right, welcome back. Very special guest on Black on the Air here in our little special trip to Atlanta. Is is Georgia the peach state? I think it is the peach state, right? It is, it is. Oh, there she is right there. (laughs) Dr. Lakeisha Hellman, who's the CEO of the Village Market Atlanta, which supports Black-owned businesses. Welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you so much, Larry. Uh, When I walked in, I shared I'm such a fan of yours. Oh, so nice. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you've created this podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, part of one of the reasons I created it was to bring in fresh voices. You know, let's hear from people and get out there. And um, Chelsea, who works with Stacey Abrams, was uh, telling us about you and I'm like, well, let's let's bring this person in. Who is who is this doc in the South doing all right. this this work? So uh, tell me about your your project here. It's called is it called the Village Market? Yes, uh-huh. um, the Village Market. I started the Village Market in 2016 uh-huh. specifically to so- to support Black owned businesses. Uh-huh. What I found, Larry, even here in Atlanta, in a place that is a mecca for Black excellence. There was still a growing. Um, I mean, you got Tyler Perry. Yes, you got Two Chains, <laughs> and every other king of the South. Ti, shout out. Um, no, but Andrew Young, of course. Yes. You, Atlanta has a history of yes. black excellence. You know? And Sweet Auburn is, you know, one of mm-hmm. the most historic places in our country yeah. for black businesses and black people. Sure. And so I can say, opening and creating the Village Market here. It was already, I tell people, the soil was rich for it already. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to breathe another vibration, enthusiasm for Mm -hmm. young black millennial entrepreneurs. But we could create a space where black businesses can test their concept. Uh And mom and pop stores who've been here for years can also be in this new existence of what it means to be a black business owner. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about the village market is that people come out in droves to support. That's awesome. It blows my mind. If we showcase 100 businesses, we know on average 3,500 to 4,000 people are going to come out to actively shop. Mm -hmm. And that was always my goal. I didn't want to create a marketplace where we window shop. I wanted us to see Mm -hmm. what it looked like when black people support black people. Okay, so tell me how it actually works. Well, what is it? What is it like? Is this a physical space? Is it a digital space? Is it both? Is it? It's both. Uh-huh. So the village market started. Ooh, look at that, man! It's yeah, both. it's nice. nice. <laughs> um, the village market started initially as uh-huh. classes for small business development at Urban Ground Coffee Shop. Uh-huh. And from those classes, were you in one of these classes? Or? I was leading the class. Okay, sorry. Yeah. No, uh-huh. no, I was leading uh-huh. the class. I uh-huh. was. 
And I get excited to tell this story about my friend Cassandra, who is uh-huh. a small business owner, um, Urban Grind Coffee Shop. She and I were playing tennis one Sunday and I was finishing up my doctorate. Uh-huh. And I share with her, so, so Cassandra, when I finish, I want to do this series called It Takes a Village. What was your doctorate in? On education leadership. Right. So I hope we get to talk about education in absolutely. my time there. I absolutely. Yeah. It's my overall being. Uh-huh. And so with that being said, it was intuitive for me to create classes on entrepreneurship and community engagement. Uh-huh. And how Cassandra and I bartered. I said, so if I beat you this Sunday, you will let me have classes at (laughs) Urban Grind. And everyone who comes to the class is free to them only if they buy something from your coffee shop. Oh, nice. And so that was a... Harder as a way to... Yes. To, I don't know, kind of have a little more interest in a different way. Absolutely. And to start foreshadowing what I was creating. Got it. I wanted to create an ecosystem that... Cassandra didn't just give space, mm-hmm. that if we come and occupy space, then people will also give to her business. Mm-hmm. To me, that's how the village grows. That's cooperative economics. Yeah. Is that kind of at the heart of true entrepreneurship in order for it to be connected community is to find the way that it connects? And it's not just about buying and selling. It's about connectivity, right? It's about connectivity. Mm-hmm. And the buying and selling is a byproduct of people getting excited to mm. be in community and space together. Interesting. Yeah. And we think in in such a beautiful month as Black History Month, when I think of the history... It's hist- a beautiful month? It is. No. A, it's, it's troubling <laughs> times right now. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, but, throwing a little shade in February. Just so. a little bit. It's, it's starting off interesting. Yeah. But when I think about Black people who I model my life after... Mm-hmm. I'm in love with people who are service providers. Oh, thank you. And who, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, no, that's all for you, Larry. It's all for you. And the connection to people and community is what makes the mm-hmm. village works. Right. You know, it's funny. My parents are from Chicago, and they grew up during segregation when um, Black community had no choice but to support Black businesses. It was the law, you know. Right. And my father kind of lamented one of the downfalls of of desegregation as good as it is, we kind of lost a lot of our connectivity to black businesses, you know, cause some of them moved to other places and other people moved in and, and the, the lower economic parts of those communities really suffered from having connections to people who were running those businesses. Do, do you think this is a kind of refinding that type of uh, territory that was lost? Yes. I am from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of cousins in Chicago. Yeah. Well, there was, that was the part of that big migration, too. It was. Too. It was yeah. a part of the big migration. Mm-hmm. And what I believe that people, Mississippians, took to Chicago from their migration was what was happening in the rural South community. Sure. And so when you go to a place like Chicago that is thriving, the way we talk about business and actualize business has changed, but the connection piece stayed the same. Mm-hmm. And so for me, with the village market, as you said, there have been a lot of pros with integration. Mm-hmm. But what dismantled our community was when we separated ourselves mm-hmm. from what we knew was fueling us. Yeah. And we became disconnected, not with just the people in a community, mm-hmm. but our purpose. Yeah. And that when we create things, it is already that in excellence. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I shared when I was writing my business plan for the village market, I started with we have everything that we need. 
And I did a root cause analysis of how we got here to think that we don't. Mm. And why did we get to a place where we wanted to shop and live everywhere else with the exception of our own people? What were some of your answers, especially to that last question? Of course, um, oppression is real. Uh And when you create systems in place where you tell people where where they live is not good enough. Right. It's less than. It's less than. Mm -hmm. And if you have any aspirations for better, the last thing you want to do is be in a place where you're less than. Right. In a system that was supposed to be separate but equal, and you knew it was unequal, you wanted to get out of the place that represented the unequal. And then you get into the place and still see that it's still unequal. It's even more unequal. Even more unequal. And more separate. And more separate. Due to wealth gaps, opportunity gaps. And for the village market, even when in 2016, it was when it was just classes at Mm -hmm. Urban Grind Coffee Shop. It was important for me that the people who were coming out teaching classes were successful black business owners Mm. teaching to novice business owners. Mm -hmm. I wanted it was symbolically it was important for the teacher to look like the student. Right. And for the student to see the teacher in such a way that, wow, you are able to do this. Mm -hmm. I can do the same thing. And that connection, the barter piece, we had a debt to pay to Cassandra. Mm -hmm. But what we really were doing was supporting her business. So now she's 11 years in business as a coffee Mm -hmm. shop owner in Atlanta. That's unheard of. The roots are strong. The roots are strong. Yeah. And... Anybody who's worked with black hair knows how important strong roots are. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I kind of dote over my locks right now. Yes, yes. Got some beautiful locks, you guys. Uh, So tell me about your background. So you grew up in Mississippi? I did. I grew Mm -hmm. up in the deep south of Mississippi. That is the deep south. That is the deep south. Did you have a big family? Not so big family, Mm -hmm. but I would say large enough. I had a larger community more than I have a large family. Mm -hmm. How many brothers and sisters? It's four of us total. Okay. And so I tease my parents and mother is deceased, but I have a sister who is 20 years younger than me. So my parents surprised Mm -hmm. us with that. Uh Um, But black love is strong. Um, Black love is very strong. (laughs) But um, I grew up in... Rural Mississippi. Are you the oldest? I'm not second oldest. Oh, okay. But first generation college student. Um, Congratulations. Yes, yes. Tougaloo College is where I went undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I share with a lot of business owners what changed my life was going to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. I don't really think I had an understanding what black history meant. Interesting. From an an excellence lens until I went to Tougaloo. What did your parents do? Um, they were factory workers, mm-hmm. and my grandparents were entrepreneurs. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, entrepreneurs. So my grandmother was a seamstress in the Mississippi Delta, mm-hmm. and my grandfather was a mechanic. What I saw, and I get the cool thing is being able to tell my grandmother that she's an entrepreneur. Yeah. And she's like, on what? I took care <laughs> of my family. Right. And I used— She was selling her goods. She was selling her goods, uh-huh. and what she did was solve a problem. So yeah. I love to talk about her in my research because she saw a problem when she was 13 years old. Her mother had died, and it was 11 of them in a small shack in wow. the Mississippi Delta. And the only thing that her mother left her was a sewing machine. And so she was working on the cotton fields, and she said that she knew that that couldn't be it. But she still worked in the cotton fields to get the thread that she needed and the fabric that she needed. Right. She realized that kids were going to school, 
that at church they needed choir robes and then the people in the fields needed things to cover them Mm -hmm. um, from the bugs. Her first client were the people that she was working next to every day in the fields. So she started to make uniforms and then she made school uniforms and then she made choir robes. She said she looked at it one day and it was 25 years in that she had purchased her house. Mm -hmm. She'd helped me through college all by the strength of a sewing machine that was left to her by her mother. Wow. And I shared with her, I said, so what you did was use what you have and used your population, your community around you. And that's what drove your business. But you saw a need. Yes. Most entrepreneurs and the ones that I think are successful usually are addressing a need as opposed to this is a great idea. You know, I just got this thing that does this, you know, but uh it's interesting when you hear those stories, it always goes back to that. Was was she a direct inspiration to you? Did she tell you stories about uh, her life and that kind of stuff? She didn't have to tell me stories. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at her feet when she was making wow. wedding dresses. Okay. And I would see the community coming in. But what I indirectly consumed mm-hmm. was how hard she worked to make sure that every client was happy. Mm-hmm. And that's customer service. Right. I remember she did one wedding dress and she did every pearl on a dress by hand. And it took her months to complete this dress. I remember when the lady came in, she wept. And my grandmother said, now that's good work. Wow. What a great story. Because that's when people say... Like, you know, you heard the expression, I put my foot in it right. for, yeah, for food. Yes. But also, you know, before that, it was like, you know, there's a lot of love in that, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing, you know. And that's what that is, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. what I saw. I saw from her love, her deeply caring about her reputation mm-hmm. and her reputation being front-facing the work that she put out in the community. Yeah, it was honored. It, and was, it was honored, honored with, with um, business. It was. Yeah. And... And she had a great, and she still does, a great deal of integrity. Mm -hmm. So she never told me to start a business. She told me whatever I did, I need to have passion behind what I created. Mm -hmm. She said, even when I was teaching in the Mississippi Delta, she said, if you're not passionate about teaching, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather, my parents would tell me the same thing about being purpose and passion driven more than wealth driven. Yes. My Grandmother understood that if I operate in passion and purpose, the money would come. Completely. Yeah. So those are the, when I, when I think about. Very wise people. Very wise Mississippians. And my grandmother is very humble. So she would say, I didn't do anything special, but create a business because I needed to take care of my family. That's a combination of humility, but a rock. Yes. You know, solid rock. Yes. You know. Not a leaf blowing in the wind right, type of thing. Right, right. You know? Yeah, that's, that's something about passion. I wrote an a essay about that a few years ago, talking about one of my uh, first summer jobs. And I was trying to decide what I wanted to do is at a, at a crossroads, because I really love showbiz and all that. But, you know, my family didn't have any money. And, and, you know, going to school is important. And I went into so many houses where people were unhappy, you know, and just seeing that. And that summer, I remember just getting the lesson, lesson that, you know, I have to follow my passion in life, you know. And, and I remember once I decided to go into showbiz, I considered myself a success. And then my career was just walking the path of that, you know. So I saw my life as a path more than a, a destination. Right. You know. The same. When I 
In formal life, I'm I'm 38 years old. I've been able to serve in education for over 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I knew very young that I would be on the journey of education. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be on the destination of education because I knew that my relationship to what it means to be an educator would change as I grew. Are you trying to say like you were a teacher's pet? Like I, I probably like I was. <laughs> um, probably a teacher's pet, a grandmother's pet as well. Right. Nothing but, wrong with that. Yeah. yeah, but I was very clear yeah. when I was young that I would teach in some capacity. Uh-huh. And What was it like being passionate about education when you're young, like do people, the kids tease you about that? Did you have to say, stop, you know, I mean, because sometimes and the black community faces this sometimes. And I think black males face it probably a little bit more where, you know, I used to when I would talk to young kids, I said, hey, man, you can lead with intelligence. You don't have to lead with cool, you know, because mm. <laughs> intelligence is cool. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but sometimes kids are afraid to do that because they're afraid of getting made fun of and that type of thing. You know, we were raised by my dad to be so secure in who we are. That's great. Yeah. yeah I, I tell people that though my, you know, my parents are blue collar workers. My yeah. mother is a high school dropout. My dad went to junior college one year. The things that I know about being in this life, I learned from them. Mm-hmm. So it was never uncool for me wanting to right. be a teacher. It's just who you are. It's just yeah. who I am. Right. And learning how to rise in that. Now my father did say, He's like, you're very smart. You could also, you could be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I told him I would cry every time somebody died. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's, not, it's not what I'm supposed to do. I want Well, just I don't kill him, Doc. Yeah, right. Keep him alive. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I think it's just, that comes to parenting. But for kids and even teachers now, I, I have colleagues who are still teaching who are sometimes embarrassed to say that they're, they're teachers. Mm-hmm. And really? It's, and it's because it's not the respectability has mm-hmm. somewhat left the institution of mm-hmm. education for whatever reason. And a lot of who I am is because I had great teachers. Yeah. So I have left the traditional classroom and I've been able to do deeper work in education um, that's more fitting to where I am in my life right now. Mm -hmm. But even with having a successful business, it came because I was a great teacher when I was a teacher. Right. And so you're still an educator and you still do this other work. How do you balance those two worlds then? I don't sometimes. I'm so (laughs) crazy. (laughs) But um, I'm a full-time entrepreneur. Uh And... It hasn't been long since I've been a full-time entrepreneur, but I used to balance working for the Georgia Department of Education mm-hmm. under school improvement. And I tell people from a nine to five, I did this. Answering problems about policy, reading, literacy, and mathematics, and mm-hmm. how to make the after-school programs be conducive mm-hmm. to pulling kids up and supporting them. And then by night, I'm looking at systematic um issues with black businesses getting access to capital and resources Mm -hmm. to create an economy that's thriving. So my brain was always, always working. And so what I wanted to do was work myself out of a job, number one. And I needed the village to still have deep programs Mm -hmm. where I was still getting in front of people and teaching. Mm -hmm. So beyond having this thriving marketplace, we have classes every month. And people are coming in to get the support that they need to be able to grow and scale their businesses. Mm -hmm. But we focus deeply on mental health and entrepreneurship. Mm. So we deal with 
what you asked me about balance, the stress of trying to create this thing that you may be the first person in your family to have created and constantly having to prove yourself that your concept is good enough, Mm -hmm. that you are deserving of funding and opportunity. How do you emotionally deal with that? Mm. And so we do classes. We could have a CPA class in the morning led by a tax attorney. And then in the evening, I have classes where black male therapists, black female therapists come out and they're teaching on how to be well in this space as you build. That's interesting. Um, Let me ask you a little bit about that for a second. Why is the mental health part of it so important? Because that that surprises me. I didn't I didn't think I I'm just surprised that that would be a part of the initial thrust of this. It almost seems like that would come later. <laughs> <I'm> a, <laughs> like once you've had your business for ten right. years, you know what? Here's a little thing that you might want to do. That's you know? kind of important. Yeah. I wanted to be um, proactive and not reactive. Uh-huh. I ask tons of questions. So when I'm leading classes, I'm also my researcher brain, my fireworks are shooting off Mm. and I'm listening to what people are saying. They're saying things like I am stressed out. Mm -hmm. I don't have the support that I need. I am burnt out. And so I would just jot these things down. And when I would build the next class or the next program, I would build it based upon what people were telling me that they were feeling. Okay. And then as a business owner, I would build it on what they needed to build their business. Mm-hmm. So I just pair every program with the feeling, the emotional needs, and then the physical needs in order to be successful. To me, what happens if you get a grave level of success and you haven't taken care of your well-being, all the success that you've encountered or have gotten due to your sacrifices you made, that's still a very lonely life Mm -hmm. because you haven't taken care of yourself on the journey. Right. And for me, the journey of health is much more important than building strong businesses. Mm -hmm. I'd rather we be well as people and the byproduct that is that we have successful businesses so we can be better stewards to each other in community. Mm-hmm. But you should call this a spiritual entrepreneurship. <laughs> more than is that even. a thing? I need to start a business. It sounds like it. I mean, it's really, it feels like a holistic approach to That's entrepreneurship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the seeds of entrepreneurship are planted best? Do they come from the home, like in your case, or that type of thing? Or is it through teaching? You know, is it through exposing kids at a young age about these possibilities and planting ideas in their head? I think some people are born with the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah, that that's a fact. That's a whole thing. Some people just, like, if by, by the way, if you have any Jamaican in you. Right. <laughs> you would have multiple businesses and you would do them well. Yes, um, that's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. So some people are born yes. with the entrepreneurial bug. And some cultures bug. are more apt to pass that on as well. Absolutely. Cult- Ownership. Yes, because it's a cultural thing, too. It is. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as what I believe in our communities, especially kids who have been disenfranchised in any way, mm-hmm. it's important to expose them to who and what they can be to show them what their options are in life. Mm-hmm. So so they know it's even a possibility. Yes. That it actually exists, right? I just read things mm-hmm. when people say, well, if you, can, you can, if you can dream it, you can be it. But what mm-hmm. if you don't have the capacity to dream it? Yeah. And so for young people put their dreams in real time in their face while they're young, Mm -hmm. make the dreams colorful so they can know other options in life and things that they can become and teach them how to do it. As far as, and and this is based on research, most black business owners have started businesses either because they are unemployed, dissatisfied at work Mm -hmm. and need more income. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you Which have, is probably a reason why most people start businesses. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And for me, I had more of an entrepreneurial bug mm-hmm. that I knew that I would be independent very soon. You were going to be on Shark Tank regardless. No, or create a Shark Tank regardless. <laughs> yes. Yes, but mm-hmm. for my friends and colleagues, their story is not always of that. They've shared that I lost a, a great job in corporate America mm-hmm. and I had to be self-reliant and self-preservation. Yeah. But other friends who come from generational entrepreneurship in a city like Atlanta, it's almost hard not to think about entrepreneurship. Because mm-hmm. it's such a cool thing here. Yeah. But in rural towns like Baseball, Mississippi, where I'm from, I don't think we think entrepreneur first. I think we look at what our parents and our families have done, mm-hmm. or we look to work with, for someone. I tell everyone, though, Larry, neither is better to me. Sure. I don't think it's better to be an entrepreneur better than working in corporate America. Sure. I think it's important for people to be in alignment with their purpose. Yeah. And to have to sleep at night with doing things that's meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Instagram, Instagram almost guilt people for clocking in and working for someone else. Yeah. And if we do this thing right and the village grows and my friends' businesses grow, mm-hmm. people will work for us. Yeah. So is that what's wrong with that? It's like the the it's the ethical things about business and creating community that's important. Are we creating a structure that everyone gets to literally be a part of the climb as you build? Mm-hmm. Are everyone a part of that? And I think when we think about business, that's much more important. Yeah. That you're building a culture around growth. Right, because there are two aspects. There's owning a business and being an entrepreneur. They're not necessarily not the, same the same thing. Like I I have I've like, you know, my brain comes up with so many different types of things and there was a philosophy I was working on for a while, and I call it creation. And I think people work out of two types of modes, either out of survival or out of creation, you know. And out of creation, they're always building something. Out of survival, you're holding on to something, you know. It's kind of the, the two different ways. And, like, when you start a business out of what you say because you need the money or you lost a job, like, that's out of survival. Nothing wrong with that. You can do well. But it doesn't necessarily lead to fulfillment. You know, you have right. to find your arenas of fulfillment in that. It's tougher. When you do it out of creation, when you're actually constructing something and building something, that is the fulfillment itself. So you don't need that extra space, which is why when people fail who are entrepreneurs, they try it again and they try it again. And it's much harder when someone's doing it out of survival to try it again and get back up. Like, do you have tools to help people that, you know, because I agree with you, it doesn't matter which way you're doing it. They both can lead to something that they can be fulfilling, you know. But how do you help the people who fall down and teach them that falling down and getting up are part of the same thing? It has to be deeply ingrained in your being Uh that you are going to fall down. Yeah. It's not that you're waiting. We're talking about millennials now. Right. So millennials. (laughs) I love y'all. How do you teach millennials? Um, (laughs) Now they're mad at me probably. Right. Larry said it. Oh, I said it too, though. I don't care. But. They know I have to give it a hundred. It's about Mm -hmm. how you fall. Mm -hmm. And. All of us have fallen. But the thing about... And what do you mean by how you fall? It's how you fall. I've, mm-hmm. I've read before that if you fall, make sure you're falling forward. Uh-huh. And in that falling forward, that if you put all your cards on the table, that means you bet on yourself. Mm-hmm. And you may feel that I gave everything that I had to this thing. Now what do I do? Right. You pull from your reserves. 
that's why the community piece is so important. Mm-hmm. Having relationships with people who have survived their falls, it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. If you don't have, like you said, keeping it 100 type friends, mm-hmm. then you would think that everyone has been this journey of entrepreneurship and creating businesses is easy. But being insulated with community, with arming yourself with resources and knowledge that, hey, doomsday may come for me. What is my backup plan? Mm -hmm. And when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, millennials or whoever it is, I ask them, so what is your fall forward plan? Mm -hmm. And we think about doomsday, meaning the best idea didn't uh, turn into what you wanted it to be. You gave all of your savings to a business that people are just not latching on. What do you do? Mm. And to me, that's preventative care. Yeah. If we can train people to be forward thinking, then we can train them to be ready for their success and their failures. Mm-hmm. So it's being realistic in what it means to be a human. For millennials and anyone, the human experience is that you're going to experience all of it. Yes, absolutely. And that has to, that should be first. Because I am going to experience all of it, how am I going to survive? Mm-hmm. What is your survival plan? My folks are in the, in the Mississippi Delta. There's always a tornado brewing. <laughs> always. Right. And tornadoes and floods. Tornadoes yeah. and floods. Yeah. And there's always a boat in somebody's yard. Mm. There's always food stocked in the, in the closet. Right. And there's people that know if you live in a low part of the Mississippi Delta when it rains really hard to start driving by to make sure they can get out. Mm-hmm. I look at an entrepreneur the same way. Is your boat in the yard? Mm-hmm. Is your food stocked up? Does your community know to check on you? That's the advice that I would give to millennials. Mm-hmm. That same level of survival plan that we do any other crisis. That's great. What about, um, you know, it, your focus seems to be to the entrepreneur themselves, you know, the person starting the business. But you acknowledge that this is a community thing. You know, it's a two-way street. So is there any teaching that needs to happen to the community itself to do any outreach to the community of, Hey, we need to support this, <laughs> you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And cause that's been a critique a black on black critique, you know, for black businesses to the community itself. It has. Yeah. And what we share with the community, the literature that we put out is what happens when we, when we support. Mm-hmm. So we share those numbers that this business, because of your support, was able to open their brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. And we make that contingent upon the relationship that the community has to the business owner. So we humanize what it means when people patronize. Mm-hmm. So because you bought X amount of products, then they were able to finally get their trademark for their company. It's making things teachable yet real. Mm-hmm. But the responsibility for any business owner is to make sure before you create a product that you are ready mm. and that you've created a business that is operating in excellence, mm-hmm. at least excellent wherever you are right now. But for me, we vet and screen and prepare businesses to be market ready. Yeah. So it is almost impossible not to support because they're all that good. Yeah. And we spend so much intentional time months before we have a marketplace Ensuring that if you have an idea, Larry, that we have thought through every part of you being successful in this space from your marketing mm-hmm. to what it looks like when it comes in the mail 
to your customer service when people come and ask you hard questions. Mm-hmm. Because when the community comes, I need them to be in awe. Because when they're in awe and when they're impressed, they tell their friends. And the stories about black businesses change by every experience when you have an amazing, amazing experience. Mm-hmm. And also what happens it lessens those times when you've had one bad experience because you can have 1,000 good experiences. Say, oh, they were just having a bad day mm. rather than this is the state of all black businesses. Right. We've been on both sides of the sword. And for black businesses, we're mostly on the sword that if you have a bad day operating, then I'm never going to support Larry again. Mm-hmm. Our work with the village market is to support you before that bad day comes to get you ready for every patron who walks in the door, white, black, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We want people to be blown away by your talents and your skills. So then you don't need us anymore, and we can create space for the next business. Right. Well, let's talk about the village market itself. Okay, mm-hmm. tell me how it operates, where is it, how it's doing. So is it, it, there's a place that you operate out of? There's a place that we mm-hmm. operate out of quarterly. Okay. So businesses, the the setup, the infrastructure of the village market, we have a quarterly big marketplace. Okay. Monthly, we do programmings um, to get businesses ready for that big marketplace. And do you go to them or do they come to you? They come to us. Okay. They come to us. And that's here, that's in Atlanta. That's in Atlanta. Okay. So have you been to Essence before? No, you know, I I haven't been. Okay, go to Essence. Believe me, there are many opportunities I've wanted to go, yeah. but I'm usually busy during that time. Okay, yeah. but Essence has a marketplace. Yeah. And traditionally, marketplaces were created because there was not space or retail opportunities for Black-owned business to be open for businesses. Mm-hmm. So we create marketplaces. My vision was to have them quarterly so I can teach in between. Okay. And since we have them quarterly, we started with, 30 businesses here in Atlanta, and Mm -hmm. now we're reaching about 31 different states and have a partnership with the Bahamas and working on our partnership with Haiti. But we have Bahamian business owners flying into Atlanta to get the classes that we teach and also to participate in the big marketplace. Mm -hmm. But if you think programming education first, that's my education background for three months. No, it sounds great. And then... One quarter a month, we do a big marketplace. It's a whole event. It's a whole mood mm-hmm. where entrepreneurs from all over the country are coming to showcase their goods and their, their wares, and the community comes out and support. We've built a plant-based cafe inside of it as well. So one part of the market is up-and-coming restaurant owners, mm-hmm. and they're testing their foods, and people are coming. We create this whole sit-down experience so you can get an idea of— Here's your menu. Here's your customers. Are you ready for all these people? Right. And we have live music going. We have kidpreneurs. It's a it's an entire experience. But that marketplace only happens three times a year. Mm-hmm. And the programming is what we do the most of. Got it. And it sounds like it's doing well. It is. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the market blows my mind. Mm-hmm. It's, I am still one of those entrepreneurs Anytime that we have a class or workshop or get a great partner or anytime we're open for the big marketplace, I sit back or I stand and walk through the marketplace in awe. Wow. I hope I never lose that Mm -hmm. because a very small thing started because I wanted to beat my friend at tennis. Uh (laughs) Plug, plug. And (laughs) to use her coffee shop Mm -hmm. to teach classes 
to now people from all over the country are coming here to partake yeah. in the village market. That's as far as L.A., where you came from. Mm-hmm. We always have six or seven businesses fly in from L.A. to showcase at the village market. That blows my mind. And for me, it's important for me to continue to be progressive in what mm-hmm. we want and the type of partners we bring on. Sure. But that the purpose of why I created it doesn't change. I mm-hmm. created the village market so we can have an actualized community. That's amazing. Do you have uh, any favorite success stories? Uh, Quite a few. Now, Quite we're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. Yes. These are just a few of the favorites. She yeah. she loves them all. I love all I love all my <laughs> villagers. That's what we call our people in the village market. Villagers? The villagers. Oh, yes. that's great. I love mm-hmm. all the villagers in the village market. Some success stories that come to mind... I have a a colleague in the village market who went back and forth if he should venture in the plant-based world. He was a really good chef here Mm -hmm. in Atlanta, and this was in 2016. This is before What the Health and all the cool vegan things that was happening. And I shared with him, I said, Livington, you are great at what you do, Mm -hmm. but you're comfortable. If you can make plant-based foods taste as good as this other food, right. then you know that you have the gift. So I had to guilt him a little bit. I and love to, plant-based as long as that plant grows meat. See, <laughs> see, this is that there's a disconnect. Uh, <laughs> but watching Chef Levy, now grown to one of the most notable chefs in Atlanta, mm. from cooking food from you name it. Mm-hmm. So even to the great Stacey Abrams and beyond and having partnerships with the movies that come here to the city. Right. To know that four years ago, he wasn't sure if that was possible. Mm. And he is self-sustaining. His food is amazing. And the level of success that he has had is mind-blowing. Another good friend started selling her sweet potato pies. Now I'm on board. You're on board? Because they're good. I should have brought you one. It's a little Wait, you're not talking about Patty LaBelle, are you? Not Patty LaBelle. <laughs> Patty LaBelle, if, you, if you're listening, I love you. Yeah, we love your pies, Patty. Yes, we love you. We love you. Um, but my good friend literally just tested out her market with, with her pies to see uh-huh. how they would do. She's now opening her second physical location. Wow, second brick and mortar. That's second amazing. Second brick and mortar. And, mm-hmm. and it started with maybe 10 people trying them mm-hmm. and a few people trying her ice cream. Now she's opening her second her. location. Yeah. Another um, black love couple just opened up a, opened up their location in Douglasville. Mm-hmm. And they are soap makers. The level of traffic that they have, mm-hmm. their company now, it's wow. They started from a six-foot vendor table. Mm-hmm. And for many entrepreneurs and small business owners to see people grow from their kitchen stove and yeah. their kitchen sink to then a six foot table to get in the keys to their own physical location. This is what they dream for. Yeah. To be a part of that in the village, getting them the resources, leveraging the opportunities that we get mm-hmm. to get the businesses in front of the right people and the right mentors and the right connections, and now they're open for business. That's great. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm a huge fan of this. You know, I've always, even at a young age, I felt, look, self-sustaining has to be part of 
of a plan, especially for our community. You know, you can't rely on outside forces and, you know, all these other aspects. To, and we've always had it. You know, it's been tamped down at different times. And so inspirational, the work Thank that you. you're doing. I hope you know that, too. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, I, it really is. I really, really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Self-sustaining is always the goal. Yeah. And that is what you said. We are it's innately inside of us. And when you're able to unlock the brilliance that is in people that's just heightened there and that can be dormant sometimes, that's very exciting. To see somebody take something to that next level, yeah, you know, is very exciting. And to see them excited. Yes. I cry about these things. <laughs> to see them that level yeah. of excited. And even for our newer entrepreneurs, when they get their first customer. Sure. Yeah. I say you need to write this down so you won't ever forget this feeling. Yeah. And stay in this space of gratitude, but get better. Right. I've Go had, harder. I've done that with people in showbiz. The gratitude thing, unfortunately, doesn't last. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I love having been in that position where people may not have believed in themselves. The next thing you know, they're a star or they're doing this or they're writing a show. You know, they have skin in the game behind the scenes or whatever. It's very exciting, you know. It is. And to be on this side of history, with the political climate that we have, yeah. I tell people to, what's happening in the world is real. Mm-hmm. Where we live, in the space that we physically occupy, that's our first world before we get to a larger world. Mm-hmm. If we can intimately work where we live and build community, though this thing out here is so enormous and so disenchanting at times, if you stay on a micro level of being responsible for your space that you hold in community, that doesn't feel as ginormous anymore. Mm-hmm. It feels like one of those things, a journey, like you said earlier, on this on the race. Right. But build here, support here, be excited about your community here. Yeah. And then in a couple months, get out and vote. Awesome. Dr. Lakeisha Homan, thank you so much. It's the Village Market. Yes, the Village Market. In Atlanta, and it's reaching out to the entire world, you guys. It's it's out there. It's coming, coming to you. You're going to it. It's all about education, all about mental health, too. I love that, you know, and taking care of yourself. Good luck with the program. Thanks for being on Black on the Air. And thank you for having me, Larry. Yeah! <laughs>